Thank you for downloading the sermon podcast for Hope City Church. We pray the word of God leaves you encouraged and hopeful today. So Jude, starting in verse 1, it says this. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. May mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Now, I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels, who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he's kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Let's pray, and then we'll dive in. Father God, I pray that you would help us this morning. Holy Spirit, come and help us to have understanding of this passage. Um, This is obviously a very heavy, intense passage, and Lord, we want to get your heart from it. We want to... Um, not be left hopeless, but be left stirred and encouraged uh, by you and and by your word. And so I just pray, God, that you would come now, give us ears that would hear what you say to us, that we wouldn't buck against it, but Lord, that we would hear you and that we would receive your words and that we would um, be challenged in every way that we need to be challenged, but Lord, that we would be stirred and encouraged and inspired to live for you wholeheartedly. And I pray those things. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So obviously, pretty intense letter and a pretty intense section that we're in. Let me just kind of recap where we've been. I'll try to do it quickly, kind of bring everybody up to speed. Um, Basically, this is a letter written by a guy named Jude. We learn from other scriptures that this is Jude, the half-brother of Jesus Christ himself. So this was Joseph and Mary had other children after uh, Jesus was born. Uh, we know that Jesus was born by the Holy Spirit. Uh, uh, Mary was uh, a virgin, got pregnant by the Holy Spirit, gave birth to the Messiah, to Jesus. After that, she's married to Joseph, and they had other children. Jude was one of them. Jude was a half-brother of Jesus, but he identifies himself in this letter as a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. So even though he was a half-brother of Jesus, we always talk, I've said this kind of several weeks, but, you know, he could have name-dropped. He could have started this letter by saying, hey, I'm Jude, the half-brother of Jesus, so you better listen up. He didn't do that. He started by saying, I'm Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ, a servant of the Messiah. And so it's powerful the way he introduces himself. And then in verse 1, he goes on to tell us who he's writing to. We know it's a, it's a group of unknown to us, but a group of Christians somewhere that he's writing to. We know that because of how he describes them in verse 1. He says, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. So he's writing to all those who are called and beloved in God the Father, that is, children of God, and kept, preserved for Jesus Christ. And then in verse 2, is one of my favorite verses this entire letter, he says, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. That's his prayer for us, and that's my prayer for you this morning. If you need mercy, you need peace, you need love, my prayer is Jude's prayer right here, that mercy, peace, and love would be multiplied to you. And then, starting in verse 3, he gets into the purpose and main heart and theme of why he's writing. In verse 3, he says, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. So this is why Jude is even writing this letter. This is why the Holy Spirit has inspired Jude to write this letter. Why? He says, I wanted to write to you about something else. I wanted to write to you about our common salvation. But I found it necessary. And we said the language there was he felt compressed. He felt 
he felt an urgency. He was moved upon with strong force to write something else. And what was that something else? I felt urged, compelled to write to you, urging you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. And then he tells us why in verse four. He says, because certain people have crept into the church unnoticed and they're perverting, they're twisting the truth, they're twisting the grace of God into, into a license for sin. Into sensuality, they're saying, oh, these things aren't a sin, they're twisting grace. Oh, God is gracious, don't worry about sin. And so they're twisting the grace of God. He says, so I want you to contend for the faith because certain people have crept into the church and they're perverting the faith, they're perverting the grace of God into sensuality. And so he says, so contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. And then what he does, so all of that, hey, he greets them. I'm writing to those who are called, beloved, and kept. Here's why I'm writing. I want you to contend for the faith because certain people have crept in unnoticed and they're twisting the truth. They're perverting the grace of God. And I don't want you to be taken aside by that. He says, now let me remind you of the Israelites of the fallen angels, and this week of Sodom and Gomorrah. So he starts giving all these, he launches into seven Old Testament examples of people who twisted the truth of God or who, who abandoned the faith or who perverted the grace of God into sensuality in some way. He says, now I want you to remember, remember what happened to them. So he says, remember Israel, though God brought them out of the land of, of Egypt where they were slaves and he set them free and he brought them in the wilderness right to the edge of the promised land. When they sent 12 spies in and 10 of them came back and said, I know God promised to give us this land, but we can't take this land. And they contradicted God's word and they caused unbelief to spread throughout all the people. And those people never saw the promised land because of their unbelief. He says, remember that. When people come into the church and they start speaking things that are contrary to the word and will of God and they start causing you to doubt and walk in unbelief, remember what happened to the Israelites when they got into doubt and unbelief. They missed the promised land, right? Then he says, remember, last week we talked about this, the second example. second example he gave us was the fallen angels. He says, remember, there were angels that were created to praise God. They were in the presence of God. They were serving him. And they rebelled because of pride and lust. We saw that last week. They rebelled and they, and they left their proper domain. They left their sphere of authority. And they went out of bounds. They trespassed into, into areas that were beyond their authority. So they came and they sinned. And they corrupted a lot of people further into sin. It says because of that, they experienced judgment. So remember the Israelites who were corrupted into unbelief and experienced judgment. Remember the fallen angels who rebelled in unbelief and experienced judgment. And now he gives us the third example. And it's all just rolling together. That's heavy stuff. But this is the third example that he gives us. We're going to look at that today. Verse 7 says this. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. So we're going there today. It's heavy. It's heavy. But Jude's third example that he gives us is the example of the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. Sodom and Gomorrah are not people. They were cities. Sodom was a city. Gomorrah was a city. And they were cities that were so notorious for their sins that God judged them. They were actually destroyed by fire. We, when we talk about, you know, I don't want to hear a fire and brimstone message. And, and man, I know I get it, right? I, I like the uplifting stuff too. And thankfully we preach through the, all the scriptures so that we're going to get all that good stuff. But then there's warnings in scripture too. And so when we talk about fire and brimstone, we, man, that's an allusion to Sodom and Gomorrah who, when, when God judged them by raining fire and brimstone on the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah because of their notorious rampant sin. So that's what it is. These are cities that were so sinful that God used them as an example. He judged them as an example of the judgment for sin that is coming. Now, many scholars point out that no incident in ancient history ever made such an impression on the Jewish people. And Sodom and Gomorrah are used time and time again in the scripture as the supreme examples of human sin and the judgment of God. They're even used this way by Jesus himself. Okay, so all over the scriptures, Deuteronomy chapter 29 and chapter 32, Amos chapter 4, Isaiah chapter 1 and 3 and, and chapter 13, Jeremiah chapter 23 and chapter 49 and chapter 50, 
Zephaniah chapter 2 and Lamentations chapter 4, Ezekiel chapter 16, Matthew chapter 10 and 11, and Luke chapter 10 and 17, Romans chapter 9, 2 Peter chapter 2, Revelation chapter 11 verse 8. From the front to the back of the scriptures, Sodom and Gomorrah is referenced again and again and again and again as remember, remember, there is judgment for sin. Now, now we're going to talk about this. What is our hope Right? Because we've all sinned. We've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Right? There's not one of us in here who can raise our hand. In fact, First John says, if you say you have no sin, you're a liar and the truth is not in you. So we're all jacked up. That's the point of scripture. Every one of us. We bring our mess and our sins and our funk. So what is our hope? We're going to get to that. Okay? But to get to that, we have to get through some heavy stuff. Okay? All over scripture, Sodom and Gomorrah are used as examples of Sin and the Judgment of God. Traveler and writer George Adam Smith in his book titled The Historical Geography of the Holy Land says this, quote, the glare of Sodom and Gomorrah is flung down the whole length of scripture. Even to this day, the words Sodom and Gomorrah are synonymous with sin and judgment. We talk about some place is sinful. Man, that's like Sodom and Gomorrah. That place is so sinful. Or, or, man, you're going to experience some judgment. Man, be careful. It's going to be like Sodom and Gomorrah in here. The ju- so when we talk about sin or we talk about the judgment of God, Sodom and Gomorrah, even to this day, are synonymous with sin and judgment. And so we need to look at the story of Sodom and Gomorrah because Jude, we're studying Jude, and Jude references it here. So the story of Sodom and Gomorrah is found in Genesis chapter 19. So flip there with me. Genesis chapter 19. We're going to start in verse 1. Genesis is the first book of the Bible. Genesis chapter 19. Now, as we go there, as we're flipping there, I want to give you a fair warning. This is one of the most disturbing accounts of sin and human depravity in all of Scripture. What we are about to read is very disturbing. It's very disturbing. The Bible doesn't flinch, but presents the truth of human sin and depravity and and all of its ugliness. And it's there for a reason. Though it's hard to read, though it's hard to look at, it's there for us for a reason, to help instruct us. And so let's read. I'm going to read 29 verses just to give us the entire story. But fair warning, it's it's disturbing, okay? Genesis chapter 19. It's talking about two angels who came into these cities. Two angels came to Sodom in the evening. Let me give you the background real quick before I read it. God, an outcry, the sin in Sodom and Gomorrah was so intense that people started to cry out to God. And it says God, God heard their cries and he decided that he was going to judge the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. And so he sent two angels in to kind of spy out the land. And so that's what's happening. Two angels came to Sodom in the evening, verse 1. And Lot, as a man related to Abraham, Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. And when Lot saw them, the angels, he rose to meet them and bowed himself with his face to the earth, and he said, My lords, please turn aside, come to my house, and spend the night, and wash your feet. Then you may rise up early and go on your way. And they said, No, we'll spend the night in the town square. But he pressed them strongly, and so they turned aside to him and entered his house, and he made them a feast, and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. But before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man surrounded the house, and they called out to Lot. Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. That word know, it's talking about having sexual relations with them. When it says in scripture, Adam knew his wife and she became pregnant. Uh, That's what it's talking about. So, So the men of the city surround his house and they say, bring these men out to us that we may know them. And Lot went out to the men at the entrance. He shut the door after him and he said, I beg you, my brothers, don't act so wickedly. Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they've come under the shelter of my roof. But they said, stand back. And they said, this fellow came to sojourn and he's become the judge. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. Then they pressed hard against the man Lot and drew near to break the door down. But the men reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. And they were struck with blindness, the men who were at the entrance of the house, both small and great, so that they wore themselves out, groping for the door. And then the men said to Lot, have you anyone else here? Sons-in-law, sons, daughters, or anyone you have in this city? Bring them out of this place. 
For we're about to destroy this place because the outcry against its people has become great before the Lord and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and said to his sons-in-law who were up to marry, who were to marry his daughters, up, get out of this place for the Lord is about to destroy the city. But he seemed to his sons-in-law to be jesting, that is, they thought he was joking. Verse 15. As morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, Up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he lingered, so the men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand, the Lord being merciful to him, and they brought him out and set him outside the city. And as they brought them out, one said, Escape for your life. Do not look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills, lest you be swept away. And Lot said to them, Oh no, my lords, behold, your servant, is, if your, soul, your servant has found favor in your sight, and you have shown me great kindness in saving my life, but I cannot escape to the hills, lest the disaster overtake me and I die. Behold, this city is near enough to flee to, and it's a little one. Let me escape there. Is it not a little one? And my life will be saved. And he said to him, Behold, I will grant you this favor also, that I will not overthrow the city of which you have spoken. Escape there quickly, for I can do nothing until you arrive there. Therefore, the name of the city was called Zor. Now the sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zor. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the city and what grew on the ground. But Lot's wife, behind him, she looked back and she became a pillar of salt. And Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord. And he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the valley. And he looked and behold, the smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace. And so it was that when God destroyed those cities of the valley... God remembered Abraham, and he sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. Ooh, okay, it's a lot of verses. That's a heavy story. Okay, I hope we were all kind of tracking there. There's a lot going on. There's obvious sin and moral depravity going on in this city. Now, before we dive into the specific reasons why Sodom and Gomorrah were judged by God, I I feel like we need to address one of the other obvious and horrifying elements of the story, one that has bothered me every time I've read it and I think should bother all of us. That is, why did Lot offer his daughters to these men? I hope that bothered you when you read it too. Hey, don't do that to these men. I have some daughters. Here, do whatever you want to them. That should bother us. Okay? That should bother us. Why, why did he do that? Okay, there are four lines of thought and, and, and that people have on this thing, and they may intersect with each other in some ways. Some of them may be more plausible than others, but let me just give you the four real quick, just so I can kind of, we have to address this, because I feel like I can't read that and then move on and not say anything about it, okay? Because that's, that's, it should bother us, okay? So why did he do that? Well, number one, a lot of people would say, well, he did that because he's obviously compromised and living in in sin and and his personal morality uh, has just been given over to the sinful culture that he was in. And so, sure, yeah, sure, a lot was compromised. Absolutely, I'll go with that, okay? Number two, some people say, well, he did that because he knew they weren't really interested in women and thought they would just refuse his offer and leave. Maybe. I don't know. We're not, we don't find that in scripture, but that's an interesting theory. Okay. Number three, why did he do that? Some people say, well, well, because there was an incredibly high value placed on hospitality in the culture of his day. So much so that Lot would rather allow his daughters to suffer such violence than to allow his guests to suffer. That that would be the worst thing that could happen is to let your guests suffer violence. So here, take my daughters instead. And actually, that's a lot of people who, who want to downplay the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah the specific sins that are mentioned, they say, oh yeah, their sin was just radical inhospitality. Well, hang on, sorry. Fourth thing, people go, well, why did he do that? The fourth would be maybe it's because, and this is true, the culture of that day valued women, I'm sorry, valued men far above women to the point that that women were treated often as no better than dogs. And that's true, the culture in that day, I mean, a woman's testimony didn't even count in court. They were treated better than dogs. Listen, unfortunately, we don't know. We don't know exactly why Lot did such a thing because the scripture itself doesn't tell us. But what we can safely say is that it was a wicked thing to do. When we pull all the other scriptures together, it's very clear that it was not God's will for Lot to offer his daughters to experience violence. So it's okay that that bothers us. It should bother us because other scriptures very, very, very clearly prohibit 
the actions that these men wanted to take. And thankfully, the angels didn't allow it to happen. Thankfully, though Lot was doing a wicked thing and offering his daughters, the angels were like, ah, and they just pulled him in and they, and they did what they did. So thankfully. So I just feel like we had to address that. I know that's not an answer we're all looking for. Believe me, if there was a clear answer in scripture, I'd give it to you. We're left to speculate. What we can say very safely is it's okay to be bothered by that because it's, it was a wicked thing to do. It's not okay that Lot did that, okay? It's important to understand that the scripture records these stories and presents these people truthfully, warts and all. So it's not going to church it up and go, oh, and, and ignore the fact that Lot did something. It tells you. If Lot did something wrong and simple, it actually tells you. This is what Lot then did. And then the angels did this. It's just telling us the truth. Okay? It doesn't mean that the Bible approves of everything that it records. So just because this is recorded in the Bible as happening doesn't mean God or the scriptures themselves approve of that. So that's not an endorsement from God. Oh, it's okay to offer your daughters. That's not, that's not what's happening here. The Bible's just honest and says, here's what happened. Okay? In fact, the New Testament tells us that the Old Testament accounts were given to us as examples and warnings for us. So I can look at Lot's behavior and go, yeah, I'm not going to do that. That was, that was pretty wicked. It's pretty awful. Okay. Now that we've kind of touched on that, let's get into this thing. And we got to do it quickly because, wow, there we go. It's supposed to be over already and we got 17 hours of stuff to do. Okay. What, what was the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah? What led to their judgment? And I'm going to try to plow quickly. According to scripture, it wasn't just one thing. So we want to go, oh, this one thing was the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah. And according to scripture, it wasn't just one thing. These cities were condemned for their widespread and pervasive wickedness. They were given over to sins of all kinds. We were told before this, God told Abraham that he was going to judge these cities. And Abraham starts kind of having a dialogue back and forth with God. He says, will you destroy if there are a hundred righteous people in there? God says, no, if there's a hundred righteous, I won't. And Moses kind of just in conversation has this interaction with God, basically down to if there's ten righteous in this city, I won't destroy it. So we know that there weren't even ten righteous people in the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. These were cities that were given over to all kinds of wickedness and sin and depravity. So it wasn't just one sin that led to the overthrow of Sodom and Gomorrah. It was a culture of, of rampant immorality and sin and rejection of God. Yet, the Bible does point out some of their specific sins. And so, when the, since the Bible points it out and makes note of some of their specific sins, we should take note of that. So that's what we're going to do. Ezekiel chapter 16, verses 49 and 50. Ezekiel chapter 16, verses 49 and 50. What were some of the specific sins that are mentioned? It says this, starting in verse 49. Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, excess of food, and prosperous ease, but they did not aid the poor and needy. They were haughty and did an abomination before me, so I removed them when I saw it. It's God speaking. So what was the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah? Let me give you four things that we see in that passage. There's four things that are there. Number one, pride. If you're taking notes, that's in your, your notes section. Number one, pride. Pride. Verse 49. Again, behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had... Underline or circle that word. They had pride. They had pride. Last week, if you were here, we saw that pride was a major factor in the fall of the angels who rebelled against God. They rebelled because they were full of pride. Right? We know that pride is destructive. I, re I read a story this week. It said in the summer of 1986, two ships collided in the Black Sea off the coast of Russia. Hundreds of passengers died as they were hurled into the icy waters. The news of the disaster was made even worse when an investigation revealed the cause of the accident. It wasn't a technology problem, like the radar malfunction or even thick fog. The cause was human pride. Both captains were aware of the other ship's presence, and both could have steered clear, but according to news reports, neither captain wanted to give way to the other. Both of them were too proud to yield first, and by the time they came to their senses, it was too late. People died for the pride of two captains. So that's just one example. It's a, it's a 
it's not a silly example, it's a horrific example, but it's one example of how pride brings destruction. And this is what the scripture says all over the place, that pride goes before a fall. Pride brings destruction. Pride brings devastation. Proverbs chapter 16, verse 5 there in your notes, it says this, The Lord detests all the proud of heart. Be sure of this, they will not go unpunished. That's heavy stuff, okay? That's how, I read that as a person who sees all kinds of pride in my own heart. And so I read that and I go, whoo, I better take notice of that. The Lord detests all the proud of heart. Be sure of this, they will not go unpunished. C.S. Lewis, who was an author um, and Christian thinker and writer, he's a, he's a guy that wrote the Chronicles of Narnia. You never read those books or whatever, it's interesting stuff. But he said this, the essential vice, the utmost evil, is pride. Unchastity, anger, greed, drunkenness, and all of that are mere flea bites in comparison. It was through pride that the devil became the devil. Pride leads to every other vice. It is the complete anti-God state of mind. So we don't know exactly how pride was manifested in the people of Sodom and Gomorrah, but we do know that they were filled with pride, and that that's one of the things that contributed to their destruction. That's what Ezekiel told us. Number two, we're talking about some of the specific sins of Sodom and Gomorrah. Number two, and this one, man, this one stoned me this week. Woo! Excess of food. Excess of food. Let me read verse 49 again. Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride. Now these three words, excess of food. Dang it. <laughs> this is also known as gluttony. Okay? As, so, as somebody who is easily, I weighed myself this week, I'm easily, I don't know, whatever. I, and thankfully, I carry it well, but trust me, you know, uh, trust me, I got plenty extra, you know. I got, I got, I got the, the spare tire and all that fun stuff. And my whole problem is whether I had the spare tire or not, I know if this is the portion I should eat when I'm eating this, it's not okay, right? So, so excess of food, known as gluttony, okay? This is one of those sins that we in the church love to ignore. We love to ignore it. When was the last time you heard any teaching or admonition on the subject of gluttony? Rarely. 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 Right? I don't like hearing it, and I don't like teaching it. Because, man, believe me, I'm getting shot through the whole time I'm teaching it, okay? Many believers wouldn't even consider having even a sip of wine because they would think, oh, drunkenness is a sin. And even though having a sip of wine would not be getting drunk, they would and I get it, okay, I respect that conviction, okay? I wouldn't even have a sip of wine, okay, whatever. Some do, some don't, whatever. I'm just saying, some people wouldn't even, oh, I wouldn't even have a sip of wine, but they have no qualms about stuffing themselves, gorging themselves at the dinner table. That's true. So gluttony is, is the sin of persistent overeating or being mastered by food. Does that make sense? That is, having no self-control in regards to food. And the Bible has some intense verses about this subject that I wish were not in the Bible, but they're there, so we got to deal with them, okay? Proverbs chapter 23, verses 20 and 21. Be not among drunkards or among gluttonous eaters of meat. That is, people who just stuff themselves and gorge themselves on food. For the drunkard and the glutton will come to poverty, and slumber will clothe them with rags. Wow, that's encouraging. <laughs> Proverbs chapter 28, verse 7. The one who keeps the law is a son with understanding, but a companion of gluttons shames his father. Yay, another uplifting verse. Proverbs chapter 20, this one's even more intense. This is the most intense one. Proverbs chapter 23, verse 2. Don't go and stuff yourself. That would be just the same as cutting your throat. <laughs> You've heard somebody say it's like, man, it's like just slow suicide. Just uh, overeating, you know? Wow. That's heavy verses. It's like you're killing yourself, you're just doing it slowly, you know? So I read that as a guy who had like a little bit extra wing stop and in and out just in the last couple days, you know, when I didn't need to. It was yesterday at work, I, you know, I work in a, in a group home facility and some of the dorms will go on outings and they'll bring back dinner for me. And, and sometimes, usually it's just one dorm will bring back. But sometimes a second dorm will bring me dinner and I don't stop them, you know what I mean? So, I, and our kitchen will bring us dinner. So I, so literally yesterday, I ate the dinner that the kitchen provided. I had some in and out and then I had, what did I have? I don't remember. I remember what the third, but it was a third dinner. It was three. I'll figure it out. I'll tell you by the end, maybe, if I can think of it. But So I had dinner that the kitchen provided. I had in and out and then I had a full other meal. Okay? The week before, the same thing. It was like dinner, dinner, and then four slices of pizza on top of that. Okay? So believe me, I'm reading these verses going, whoo, okay. All right? 
our physical appetites in scripture, our physical appetites, our yearning for food and other physical appetites that we have, they're an analogy in scripture all the time of our ability to control ourselves. Okay? That is, if we're unable to control our eating habits, we're probably also not able to control other habits, such as those of the mind, like lust and coveting and anger. And if we're unable to control our eating habits, we're probably also unable to control our tongues from things like gossip and slander and strife, speaking discouragement or speaking death. It's saying your physical appetites, they're, they're, they're a good barometer of your self level of self-control. If you're able to control yourself with food, you're probably able to build self-control in other areas. But if you're just wildly out of control in that area, you're probably wildly out of control in other areas too. So we are meant to enjoy food. It's part of why we weren't just given teeth, but we were also given taste buds, okay? We're meant to enjoy food. It's good to enjoy. And praise God, because I love food, okay? So we're meant to enjoy it, but not to be ruled by it, right? God calls us to have control over our appetites, not to let our appetites control us. And Galatians chapter 5 tells us that self-control is one of the things that the Holy Spirit produces in us. So when the Holy Spirit comes to live in us, what will be growing in us is a bunch of things, including self-control. Ability to control ourselves. So the Holy Spirit will empower us with self-control. So we see two of the specific sins that are mentioned. Number one was pride. Number two was excess of food. Thank you, Sodom and Gomorrah, for that wonderful example that I get to deal with now. And number three, they didn't help the poor and needy. They didn't help the poor and needy. Ezekiel chapter 16, verse 49, again, behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, excess of food, and look at this, prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and needy. So apparently, Sodom and Gomorrah were a prosperous people, okay? Now, let's be very clear. Their sin was not that they were prosperous or that they had prosperous ease. It's that they enjoyed their prosperous ease without doing a thing to help the poor and needy among them. Do you see that? This is a picture of a people who are stuffing themselves and enjoying prosperity and ease, and there's a bunch of poor and needy people all around them, and they're doing nothing to help them. They're just feeding themselves, feeding their appetites, enjoying ease and prosperity, and doing nothing to aid the poor and needy. They didn't use their wealth to help the poor. And listen, guys, I, I, I gave you a bunch here, and actually this was like, ah, oh, there's hundreds. It's all over Scripture. God's heart for the poor and for the needy repeatedly jumps off the pages of Scripture. I, I, I challenge you to find a, a book of the Bible that doesn't say something about caring for the poor or God's heart for the poor or, or the needy or ministering to those in need. I challenge you to try to find a book in the Bible that doesn't have something to say about that. God's heart for the poor is so clear. Let me just give you a few. We're going to rattle through them quick. Proverbs chapter 19, verse 17. Look at this. It says, whoever is generous to the poor lends to the Lord and the Lord will repay him for his deed. God takes it personally when you're generous to the poor. You give to the poor, God's like, oh, you just gave to me. I took that. You lend to the poor, God's like, you do that for the poor, you're doing it for me. I take it, he takes it personally. That's a beautiful thing. Psalm chapter 113, verses five through eight. Who is like the Lord our God, who is seated on high, who looks far down on the heavens and on the earth? He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes, with the princes of his people. He lifts the poor out of the ash heap. He lifts up the needy. That's God's heart. Proverbs chapter 22, verse 16. Whoever oppresses the poor to increase his own wealth or gives to the rich will only come to poverty. You want to oppress the poor to make yourself more wealthy? He says, you're going to come to poverty. God's going to deal with that. He's going to deal with that. Proverbs chapter 21, verse 13. Whoever closes his ear to the cry of the poor will himself call out and not be answered. You want God to hear and answer prayer? It says, if you've closed your ears to the cry of the poor, God closes his ear to you. That's heavy, but it shows us that God personally identifies very strongly with the poor. I, I mean, this is not like questionable in scripture. We, look, we see this all over the place. Okay? Proverbs chapter 22, verses 22 and 23. Do not rob the poor because he's poor or crush the afflicted at the gate, for the Lord will plead their cause and rob of life those who rob them. So as you oppress the poor, God's going to deal with that. 
God's going to deal with that. So apparently Sodom and Gomorrah were very prosperous, but they did not care for the poor, and God took it personally, and that's part of what brought their judgment. Number four, they committed an abomination. They committed an abomination. Ezekiel chapter 16, verse 50, they were haughty and did an abomination before me, so I removed them when I saw it. This is where things get really touchy, especially in our culture today. What abomination did they commit? Okay. Well, when you put this text together with other passages, we, we can begin to get a clear picture. Okay. The word abomination is used elsewhere. Okay. Leviticus chapter 18, verse 22. You shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It's an abomination. 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 6 and 7. If by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what's going to happen to the ungodly. And if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked. So this abomination elsewhere is used speaking of, of kind of the sin, the acts of the acting out of homosexuality. It's talking about sensual conduct here. We know that their sin was sensual conduct. And Jude 7 says this, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in, look at this, sexual immorality, and underline these words, pursued unnatural desire. Other translations would say other flesh or strange flesh. They pursued an unnatural desire. They serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. So, it appears that the abomination that they committed, when you put all these together, was that they indulged in sexual immorality. Specifically, they pursued what is called unnatural desire or other flesh. That is, they acted out the sin of homosexuality. Men with men, women with women, that's what they were saying. Now, I, I know, I know that just preaching that, just saying that, automatically makes me a bigot in many people's minds nowadays. But I assure you, I'm not, okay? I don't say any of this as if I'm on a pedestal above anybody else, because believe me, I've got enough sins in my own heart and on my own plate to, to, to get on any soapbox and act like I'm better than somebody else, okay? And, and what's happened in my heart since, since Christ coming to live inside of me is a profound and growing love for every person, everywhere, okay? But I think there are two dangers when approaching the Bible's teaching on this subject. The first is that we ignore, minimize, or justify this sin. That is, I don't like what the scripture says about it, so I'm just going to reinterpret the scripture to mean what I want it to mean. Or I'm going to, if I can't reinterpret the scripture to make it mean what I want it to mean, oh, the scripture is okay with it because see this, if you twist this verse and you find that nuance of that word, then maybe the scripture is okay with it. When that doesn't work, or maybe I'll just downplay the authority of the scriptures themselves. I'll just go, oh, you know, scriptures are hit and miss. Some things are good. Some things are bad. I don't like what it says about that, so we're going to throw that part out. But I like when it says God is love. I like when it talks about his grace and mercy. So I'm going to take that part. I'm going to keep that. I'm going to put that in my blender. But the parts that I don't like, like these passages, I'm going to throw those out. So we either reinterpret scripture or we downplay the authority of scripture because we just want to ignore, minimize, or justify this sin. Um, so that I don't have to submit to what it teaches on this topic or any other topic that challenges me. In approaching this story, many people say that Sodom and Gomorrah weren't judged for any sort of, of, of homosexual, homosexual behavior. Some say that they were just judged for radical inhospitality. They were not hospitable to these people. They were, it's like, that's like saying, like saying that the primary sin of Sodom and Gomorrah was a lack of hospitality. It's like saying, you know, oh, the husband who beats his wife, his primary sin is that he's insensitive. It's like, yes, they were inhospitable, but is that the main thrust of the story? It's, it's not what's happening here. Some say that they were judged for, for, again, this is heavy stuff, but attempted gang rape of these angels. And yeah, that was horrific. The problem with those theories that they were judged for their inhospitality to these angels or for their attempted gang rape of these angels, the problem with those theories is that God had decided to judge them before that happened. The outcry against them had come up to God before that had happened. And his decision to bring judgment was before those events. And anyone with a simple reading can see that this is not the main point or emphasis of the text. It's hospitality. It's there. It's part of it, certainly. 
So I think the first danger in approaching this topic is to, to water down the truth, and we're not going to do that. So I know it's not going to make me popular, maybe upset some people, I understand that. But I can't, in, in pure conscience, before God and before you stand here and water down the truth of the scriptures because some may not like it. So we're not going to do that because that, at the, at the end of the day, doesn't help anybody. But the other danger is to emphasize and hyper-emphasize this sin to the exclusion of others. Which, let's be honest, a lot of Christians have done for a long, long, long time. Okay? We get on a soapbox or people grab picket signs and they start acting, and they start, it's really hateful and awful. And they make a big thing out of this sin. And and while excluding others, all sin is a big deal. All sin is a big deal. And the ones that are most detrimental to me are the ones that are in my own heart. I'm just going to be honest. It's always a bit disturbing to me to see images of like a 400-pound man carrying a, a sign that says God hates gay people as if God's perfectly fine with his gluttony. You see what I'm saying? So if we hammer home this warning against homosexuality while excluding or ignoring other sins like pride and gluttony, uh, uh, sorry, this warning against homosexuality, while ignoring other sins like pride and gluttony and greed, we're missing the point. And perhaps we're guilty of the greatest pride because we get on that soapbox because we think, oh, at least I'm not guilty of that. Then we're like the Pharisee who said, thank you, Lord, that I'm not a sinner like this man. I have my sins, but it's not that. It's like, well, okay, like as if yours is better. Right? When we use these passages to just clobber people with condemnation, we're missing the heart of God. The scripture tells us that all of us are, have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And all of us, scripture says, this isn't popular either, but all of us says we stand condemned already before God because of our sins. That's all of us. The gospel, the good news, that's what gospel means, is the message of hope and salvation in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For all who put their trust in him. Anyone, anywhere, everywhere who believes and repents and trusts in Jesus Christ. Every one of us are sinners in need of a savior. That's the hope of the gospel. So if we ever are caught in a position with this sin or with any other sin. Where 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 we're above somebody else looking down our nose like our sins don't stink as bad as theirs. We've missed the point of the gospel. We, we're undermining the, the, the strength of our own sin. And in fact, we're stepping into the sin of the greatest pride to think that we're less sinful than somebody else. So let me show you this in, in action. Where This is a tension to hold. It's a hard thing. It's a hard thing. Most Christians can't do this. Most people can't do this. Okay? One of my favorite stories is when, when they bring to Jesus a woman that was caught in the act of adultery. Jesus, she was caught in the act of adultery. In the act. And the law says that she should be stoned to death. Jesus doesn't argue that. He doesn't say, no, the law doesn't say that. If you twist the words, it doesn't, you know, there's some nuances of a translation. If you say, no, he doesn't say that. He didn't even address that. They're like, the law says she should be stoned. He bends down, writes something in the dirt. I wish I knew what it was. Okay. And then he says to them, okay, cool. Whichever one of you has no sin, go ahead and throw the first stone. Dang it. Who's going to hurl that first stone? Because as soon as they throw it, they're, they're claiming to be perfect and have no sin in their lives. So what he does is, it's like, yeah, she sinned. Yep. So have you. So have you. So they all drop their rocks and they split and he looks at her and he does what most of us can't do. He says, where are your accusers? Is there no one here to condemn you? She says, no one. He says, neither do I condemn you. No condemnation for me. Now go and sin no more. He didn't condemn her, and he didn't condone her sin. Nope, he didn't condemn, and he didn't condone. He had true compassion. He says, I don't condemn you, but that is a sin, and I want you to go and sin no more. So he doesn't downplay sin. He doesn't justify sin. He doesn't reinterpret sin. He says, yes, that's a sin. I want you to go and sin no more, but first, understand there's no condemnation in me. Romans 8 1 says, there's no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. You're not condemned for your sin. Yet, let's not run the other way. I find that most Christians do one or the other. We either condemn sin, like we're holding the sign or making an issue out of whatever, and we're condemning other people, and we're like the ones that are standing there holding stones ready to stone her. We either condemn or we condone. We go, neither do I condemn you. Now go and do whatever you want. Do what feels good. 
Jesus didn't do either one. Can we find the same tension that Jesus found? Can we find the same place that says, no condemnation? There's no condemnation. But I'm not also going to condone sin. In my life, in your life, anybody else's life, that doesn't help anybody. Let's call sin a sin. And let's trust in God for his grace and mercy to empower us to overcome in these areas. Look at Romans chapter 1, verses, sorry, Romans chapter 1, verse 26, and we're going to read through chapter 2, verse 2, okay? This is another passage that does the same thing. It calls sin a sin, but then it says, hey, but don't jump on the condemnation train. It's not going to work. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with their passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Wow, this goes on and on. Though they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give their approval to others who practice them. Now look at this. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. So is homosexuality clearly mentioned in this passage as a sin? Yes, it is. Yes, it is. But did you see all the other sins that were mentioned here? Coveting, you ever coveted something that doesn't belong to you? Strife, you ever had strife with someone? You ever been in a moment of strife with somebody? Deceit, you ever been deceitful? No, me either, I'm perfect. Gossip, no, never that. We got churches filled with gossip that are, that are hammering on people with same-sex attraction. Filled with gossip, filled with gluttony, filled with pride and hammering on people for another sin. You see all the other sins that are mentioned here. This is boasting. You ever boasted about yourself? This is disobedient to parents. Disobedient to parents. My whole teenage years just threw me into hell right there. That's what happened. That's it. Disobedient to parents. Here's what the scripture clearly teaches. All of us have sinned. What that list was supposed to do is include all of us. This list and other lists, when there's a list of sins in scripture, it's not exhaustive. It's just a sampling. Like this or this or this or this sin. And it's saying, listen, you're somewhere in there. You're somewhere in there. I don't know a single human being who's ever kept the Ten Commandments perfectly. I don't know a single human being who can pass the test of this list their whole life. That's what it says. All of us have sinned. So yes, we have to call sin what it is. We don't minimize sin. We don't say that's not a sin or that's not a sin or that's not a sin. Oh, it's no longer a sin. God doesn't care about sin. It says don't do that. Actually, it says we know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice sin. God will judge sin. That's what he said. The judgment of God. But then he says, but who are you to pass judgment on them? As if you're better, as if you're not guilty of sin too. That's what it's saying. So we take a passage like Romans 1 and we just clobber people with it about that specific sin and Romans 1 lists all these other things too and then goes on in chapter 2 to tell us, so who are you to judge? Yes, the judgment of God will rightly fall on people who don't repent and trust in him, but who are you to stand on your high horse and get above somebody else and act like your stuff doesn't stink? All of us are just as sinful and in need of the mercy and grace of God as everyone else. Now, in all fairness, sometimes Christians are accused of making a big deal out of this sin of homosexuality when in fact, we're really many times just responding to this attempt within our culture and within the church to redefine the Bible's teaching on this subject. And the last 2,000 years of unanimous Christian witness that's, that's reinterpreting it to say, oh, maybe it's no longer sin, or maybe the scriptures, okay? So a lot of, if, listen, if culture was on a war path to redefine other sins like pride and say pride was no longer a sin, or lust is no longer a sin, or adultery is no longer a sin, or gluttony is no longer a sin, you know, I'd be more vocal about that one too. The point here is that scripture clearly teaches 
And this is hard. I don't make light of this. I don't struggle with this. But man, I can only imagine what that struggle is like. Scripture clearly teaches, though, that the practice of homosexuality is a sin in God's eyes. And it appears to be part of the rampant sinful culture which caused God to bring judgment upon Sodom and Gomorrah. So it wasn't just that. People would point to just that. So the scripture lists all the other things we talked about, too. And we didn't struggle with that. Yeah, pride is a sin. Okay, gluttony is a sin. Even though that one sting is hard. Okay, and, you know, not taking care of the poor. I can see how that's a sin. We get to this one and we go, oh, no, no. No, the Bible doesn't flinch. It's honest. Let's be honest with what the Bible says and what the Bible teaches. But the point is that Sodom and Gomorrah were exceedingly sinful. And that was expressed in many ways. Many ways. And as a result, they faced the judgment of God. Now, time's way over. We're so over time. But quickly... I can't leave you there because what do we do with this? What do we do with this story? If I leave you there and don't go where we're going right now, we didn't get to the gospel, guys. We didn't get to the good news. All we got out was the bad news. Right? And I promised you at the beginning we were going to get to good news. What do we do with this story? Now, first, real quick, imagine a place. Just imagine. I mean, it's going to be really hard for you to do. But just imagine a place. Imagine a culture that is filled with pride and gluttony. Imagine a place, it's going to be tricky to do, but imagine a place that's very prosperous but doesn't really care for the poor and needy. Imagine a place that's filled with all manner of sexual immorality and confusion. That's really hard to imagine, I know, for us. Does that sound familiar? A culture that is filled with pride and gluttony and prosperous but doesn't really take care of the poor and needy the way that we should. A place that's filled with all manner of sexual confusion and immorality of all kinds. Man, the judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah is meant to serve as a warning for all people everywhere. Okay? Far from being outdated and irrelevant, this passage is remarkably relevant to our present culture. We point to that and we go, oh, that's outdated. There could be no other passage probably more relevant than where we're at right now as a culture. Could there? I feel like we're describing America when I read about Sodom and Gomorrah. And certainly, in many of these instances, we're describing my own heart. So what do I do with that? Jesus himself points to Sodom and Gomorrah as a warning about the day of his return and judgment. Luke chapter 17, verses 22 through 30. We're almost done, guys. He said to his disciples, Jesus said this, the days are coming when you'll desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man and you'll not see it. And they'll say to you, look, look there or look here. Don't go out and follow them. For just as lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so it will be, so will the Son of Man be in his day. That is, everyone everywhere will see the return of the Son of Man. But first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Listen to this, guys. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the days of the Son of Man when Christ returns. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. So will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. Jesus himself points to the story of Sodom and Gomorrah and says, it's going to be just like that when I return. Eating and drinking and partying and planning and having your fun and doing your thing and living life and getting married and all that stuff. and great Return. That's heavy, but those are the words of Jesus Christ himself. Peter points to Sodom and Gomorrah as a warning for us. 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 through 9. He says, but false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. For if God didn't spare the angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, if he didn't spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world, upon the world of the ungodly, 
If by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what's going to happen to the ungodly. And if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. Sidebar, real quick, because i got to do this. Did you see how it called Lot righteous? Oh, that righteous Lot who was tormented by other people's sins. This is how you are seen in Jesus Christ. Was Lot perfectly righteous and did everything right? No, he offered his daughters to these people. We know that he did plenty of acts of unrighteousness. And yet, by the time we get to the New Testament, he's called righteous Lot. How does that work? Same way it works for you and me. Same way it works for you and me. That in Christ, there is no condemnation. He says, I will forget your sins. Remember your sins no more. So the Old Testament says, Lot offers his daughters. The New Testament says, Lot's in Christ. He's righteous. He's righteous. His sins are forgiven. He trusted somehow in the God who saves. This passage that we just read is a warning to the unrighteous. It serves as a warning. Let Sodom and Gomorrah serve as a warning to you that there is judgment for sin, and it's going to be like that in the return of Christ. That's heavy. We should take that seriously. That's New Testament, saying, remember Sodom and Gomorrah. So Jesus points to it, Peter points to it, and here in Jude, Jude points to it. And says, guys, don't forget. Don't forget the Israelites who fell into unbelief and faced judgment. Don't forget the angels who rebelled against God and faced judgment. And don't forget Sodom and Gomorrah who rebelled against God and faced judgment. He says, contend for the faith because some people are coming in and corrupting it. And don't forget the Israelites and the angels and Sodom and Gomorrah. Don't forget. By pointing to this example, Jude is saying that those who have infiltrated the church are perverting the truth because they're filled with pride and greed and sensuality, just like Sodom and Gomorrah, and that they will face the judgment of God if they don't repent and turn to him. Now, if I leave you there, if I leave you there, I know, guys, guys, I know I'm so late. Forgive me. But if I just leave you with that, if I just leave you with these sins are bad, don't do them, I've condemned you to death, okay, to hopeless condemnation and just behavior, behavior modification. We are meant to feel the weight of our sin. We should feel it. When scripture calls out our sin, we should go, yeah, we're meant to feel it. But it's supposed to lead us somewhere, not to be buried by shame and guilt and condemnation. When we feel the weight of our sin, it's meant to lead us to Jesus. It's meant to lead us to him. When the scripture says that's a sin, and I go, ah, I'm guilty of that. He goes, I know. And I go, ah, what do I do? I can't be saved on my own. He goes, you're right, you can't. What are you going to do? I sent a savior. It's supposed to lead us to Christ. So what do I do when I, when I wrestle with pride or gluttony or lack of concern for the poor or same-sex attraction or any other sin? Those are the ones that were just mentioned here. What do I do when I find any of that in my heart? The same thing any Christian does when they find in themselves any desire that is against the will of God. We turn to Jesus in repentance and in faith. This highlight this, write it down, bookmark it, read this every day because this is the hope of every Christian. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18. Christ suffered once for sins. That is, he died for your sins. Why? This is the righteous dying for the unrighteous. You and I are unrighteous in our own. But the righteous died in our place. Christ suffered for our sins. Why? That he might bring us to God. How do I get to God? By being a better boy? Trying harder? No. By seeing the weight of my sin and trusting in Jesus Christ for salvation. That he paid the price for my sin. That he paid the price to bring me back to God. Every other religion is some form of earn your way to God. I promise you. Attain enlightenment. Do enough good deeds that outweigh your bad deeds and you'll earn your way to heaven. Christianity says you can never earn it. You'll try and try and try and you can't and you'll die in your sins. What you have to do when you feel the weight of your sin is repent and trust in Jesus that he died for your sins. Last verse. Repent therefore, that is turn from your sin. Repent and turn again so that your sins may be, look at this, blotted out. What better news is there than that? So that your sins may be blotted out. And look at this, the times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. 
So when you find those things within your heart, don't twist the truth to accommodate your ungodly desires or opinions or preferences. That's what those were doing. Judah's pointing out. They're twisting the truth because of their sensuality. When you find ungodly desires in your heart, don't twist the truth like these are doing, Judah's saying. Don't do that. Don't pervert the grace of God into a license for sensuality. Don't start to say, well, that doesn't mean whatever, so you can justify your sin. He says, when you find ungodly desires in your heart, don't do that. Don't twist the truth. Don't cling to your pride and your sin. Humble yourself. Submit to God and to his word. Repent and trust in the mercy and grace of God to forgive you and cleanse you and empower you to live for him. Amen? Father, we thank you for your word. Pray that you would stir us and encourage us and and challenge us, Lord. Every one of us found ourselves, I'm sure, either in these sins, in these verses, or we find ourselves somewhere else just being pegged like, yes, God, I see that sin in my heart. And Lord, keep us, please, from, from the horrific error of finding sin in ourselves, but then twisting your truth or twisting your word or perverting your grace to justify our sins. Keep us from that error, God, please. When we feel the weight of our sin, let it just remind us to fall to our knees in, in humble adoration and cry out to you, thanking you for grace and mercy and salvation because of the cross of Jesus Christ. That because you paid for every single one of our sins, you look at us and see us as righteous, as pure, as perfect and holy before you, God. And that out of our gratitude for that, that we are washed clean, white as snow, God, that you would then empower us to live for you. I pray for peace and strength and encouragement and hope and life to everyone here today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.